Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. It is a great Sunday in Melbourne. All things uh, being good. We're going well. I've got the team on the line. Good morning, Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you faring there, fella? Uh, better than average. Oh, oh that's pretty good. <laughs> nice, doctor. I'm really enjoying the, the two hours of exercise. Oh, yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. We all got a, a, an hour ripped off us today. If you haven't worked it out, folks, uh, if you think you're supposed to be listening to a different show, it's 11.01. That means it's time for Einstein and Gogo. Uh, also on the line, I've got Dr. Laura. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane, and happy birthday. Well, thank you, ma'am. I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, thank you for announcing that to the world. Uh, yeah, I feel ripped off because I lost an hour out of my birthday. I think it's the first time it's ever happened, although I'm sure someone will correct me on that and say, you know, when you were seven, you were too young to realize that happened then too. But yeah, whatever. Uh, Dr. Lyndon, good morning. Morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Happy birthday. 29 this year. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you mean that's how long I've been doing the show or that's how old I am? <laughs> 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 I think that's uh, yeah. There's a hmm, interesting. Yeah, I started young. Um, anyway, we've got uh, some great guests coming on the show very soon, folks. We have four guests lined up today. It's going to be a really interesting program. But first of all, the team has prepared their usual news segment for you, Dr. Linden. Do you want to start us off? Yeah, definitely. And you're right. Great show today. Um, it's a lovely sunny day to be uh, listening to some science with our 23 hour day. Now. I wanted to talk quickly about um, carbon emissions. Now, we know that we need to reduce our carbon emissions so we can avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And I don't know if you've been watching or if you watched the um, Fight for Planet A that was on ABC a few months ago. I think it was back in August with Craig Brewcastle. He talked about how as individuals we can reduce our carbon emissions by our transport decisions, by thinking about what we eat, by thinking about how we use our electricity at home. And these are just some of the areas where we need to kind of move away from burning fossil fuels into different different uh, options. But one sector of our world and the way that we live our lives, it's quite hard to decarbonise is industry. So thinking about steel production, cement, ceramics, paper, wood, all of these different kind of uh, sectors they account for about a fifth of the world's carbon emissions, about 21%. And it can be quite difficult to move away from directly burning fossil fuels in those industries because they often need really high temperatures to achieve what they want to achieve. But a paper that's come out this week, I was just accepted actually in environmental research letters. It was a collaboration between researchers in Sydney and Melbourne and in Germany has looked at 11 different industries in Europe to try to figure out how they can become more electrified. So it's called electrification, how they can move away from carbon-intensive processes to more electric processes. And this is really exciting because what they've realised is that you can or they can move 78% of the heat, sort of heat processes, cooling processes that are currently done 
they can be moved to electric options now using technology that already exists. So this is things like boilers or induction, um, heat pumps, those kinds of things. And if you incorporate technology that's being developed, so kind of more out there um, electric ideas, then that number goes up to 99%. So wow. 99% of the, the energy that's required in these sectors can be can be provided by electricity. And then, of course, if you get that electricity from renewables rather than burning fossil fuels, then that mm. can make a really big difference. So this, I think, is quite exciting because that sector of um, that piece of the puzzle is a really tough one to move. And if we're really trying to move towards carbon neutrality, yeah. then these have to be addressed. So this this paper, I think, is a really nice step towards that. Yeah, no, that, that sounds fantastic. And if we can get, um, you know, 99%, as you say, is a significant amount. I mean, 1% one, 1 of a lot is still a lot, but uh, it's a very good point to achieve even, you know, at the moment when we're looking at such small percentages of those industries being in an appropriate state for, for what we need in the future. Now, I forgot to mention to you three that um, my, my little son James is listening at the moment, so and he'll be critiquing you when I get home. Um, he's, he's a budding scientist, so, you know, don't bore him, people. You better keep the standard up. Laura, it's up to you. I'll try not to bore him by fecal transplants. Now, fecal transplants is something that actually we all may have a bit of a laugh about it, but it's actually really serious in sort of now being accepted as an effective treatment for certain things being investigated in a whole range of diseases. Now, this week, there was a study in Finland, um, and it was published in Cell, which is sort of one of the biggest scientific journals, where babies born by C-section were given small doses of um, fecal matter from their mothers via breast milk in an attempt to improve their gut bacteria. Mm. Now, as I mentioned, fecal transplants or bacteriotherapy, as it's also called, um, the point of this, of transferring healthy fecal matter into a into um, a recipient or a patient, if you like, it's to restore the gut microbiome. And we know that the gut microbiome is so important in controlling our response to several diseases, which is why it's being investigated, you know, to see how patients will respond to various cancer treatments, Alzheimer's, already routinely given as an effective treatment for diarrheal um, infections, infections that cause diarrhea, I should say. So what is, why would you do this for babies that are given by C-section? Well, about it's well known that babies um, delivered by C-sections show an increased susceptibility to allergies later in life and also asthma. And a huge study came out last year showing that actually the gut microbiome of um, babies delivered by C-section compared to those delivered naturally, they're very different. And C-section babies actually lack a lot of um, the healthy microbiome or gut microflora that you might expect, although this is all normalized by nine months, then the babies look exactly the same. But what's the importance of, you know, those first few months of life in priming the immune system? Also, I should mention that this has led to a rise in what they call vaginal swabbing, because it's thought that if you get this bath of, of sort of bacteria as you go through the vaginal cavity, you're kind of flooded with bacteria. And so there have been studies where, you know, you take a baby after, just after it's been born by C-section and you actually just smother it in vaginal fluids. But this, this study, study has actually said that that doesn't work quite as well as ingesting fecal matter. So in this study, 17 mothers were recruited to give, and it was mothers who were known to be given birth by C-section, 
three weeks prior to birth, the stool was taken from the mothers and they were screened for pathogens. And this is why you cannot do this at home. Not that anybody would want to do this at home, but <laughs> first you screen the stool for pathogens and only seven mothers could go forward in the study. So the seven women with pathogen-free samples, fecal matter was diluted in the breast milk and then the babies who were ingesting this um, breast milk with small amount of fecal matter were um, studied over time, monitored over time by looking at the microbiome via the baby's feces. And what they found that within three weeks, the, the gut microbiome of the treated C-section babies resembled naturally vaginal burn, born babies. And then you compare that to um, untreated C-section babies who have this you know, huge lacking um, of bacteria. And usually, as I mentioned, it takes a year for those microbiomes to normalize. By, so just by getting a little bit of um, feces in there, and it's kind of thought that it's known that birth can be a very messy process. It's not just the vaginal um, fluids. Mm. It's actually having like a little bath of um, feces as way up on the way out. Wow. Linda, you've recently given birth. Would you like to... Uh, <laughs> no, definitely, that, no, I would definitely not like to uh, recount my birth story. But um, N equals seven, is that, like, what do you think about that, Dr. Laura? Are you buoyed by these results or you kind of have some questions? Yeah, I mean, seven, it's, it's very small and obviously the babies need to be studied long term as well. But I think that it makes a lot, it makes a lot of sense that um, I, I don't think, I think it's a good idea. I'm for it. I mean, when I was reading about vaginal swabbing, I was also thinking that's not a, not a bad plan, even though, again, don't, don't try that at home. It's not meant to completely restore the microbiome, but can't mm. hurt, even though it could hurt if you're, the store's pathogenic. So, again, maybe don't try that at home. It, it's an interesting one, isn't it, though, because we really don't understand that much about the microbiome at this point. So we're kind of, we're tinkering with a complex process with some potential solutions where we, we don't understand the, the outcome we're trying to achieve in a sense and we don't really understand the mechanism for it, but there's some positive results when we do X, which is kind of an interesting way to do science in a way where, you know, it reminds me a bit of the sort of development of antibiotics in a certain way. You know, we don't really know how this works. We know it does and that's great. So we're going to mimic this biological molecule and spread it across the world. But, you know, not really. And then when we need to create something new, we don't know how to do that because we didn't understand the science effectively in the first yeah, place. Yeah, most, most successful treatments have been developed empirically. I mean, but we don't know mm. that C-section babies are getting allergies because they're missing these, yeah. you know, microbes early in life. That link has not been shown. But being an immunologist, like the priming of the immune system early in life is incredibly mm. important. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I mean, if you were to take a guess, it's probably the direction you would go in, I suspect, as yeah. you say. But but the vaginal swab one is a good example of how, you know, may, maybe those guesses aren't always 100% right, but, you know, they're heading in the right direction. So, hmm. Thanks, Dr. I look Laura. Forward to hearing, um, I look forward to hearing what James thinks about that story, Dr. Uh, well, I mean, the fact that you called it fecal transplants and not poo transplants, James may not have been as interested in that, but I suspect <laughs> I'll be talking to him about poo when I get home, um, giving him a good dose of science. <laughs> and no, don't, don't do this at home. Remember what Laura said. So yeah, that will be an important point to the story. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Uh, Dr. Shane, uh, this is something a little different, and it, it's because one of the... Um, interesting outcomes of COVID in the scientific community is because we're not going to conferences and they're all online. That has some good parts about being able to communicate. It has some not great parts about exchange of ideas, but there is an evolving strong advantage to the public. And that's that a lot of times now you're seeing conferences where there are public lectures, which are much more accessible 
to a very large audience instead of a public lecture where you happen to live in the town the conference is at. And these two these two little public lectures in a plenary session, which is actually next Tuesday, caught my eye. And it's the Amer it's the annual meeting of the American Association of Aerosol Research, um, or like they, they like to call it uh, AAA. Um, and they have a, a plenary session, which is actually a Tuesday, October 6th at 1 a.m. our time, uh, or uh, it's Monday, October 5th at 10 a.m. their time. And if you just go to www.aaar.org slash 2020, you can find the link to register. But it's two talks, and it's actually about the role of aerosols in the transmission of COVID and aerosols and masks. So this is really, if you're curious about some of the science from aerosol researchers about the health advice that we have in Victoria, this would be an interesting set of lectures to give you insight into why we have the health advice we do. Talking today does not suggest in any way you shouldn't follow the current health advice from the Victorian government, because this is kind of some of the science it's based on. This is just a chance for you to hear about the research that this is based on. And and it's put it in the context of, of, of what we do know, that trying to understand the, what is the role of aerosols in transmission of COVID. Um, remember, aerosols are really just defined as liquids or solid particles that are suspended in air, most of the time individual to the naked eye. Um, and, and we certainly know that there's evidence that different size droplets uh, play a role in carrying and transmitting coronavirus. Um, and what we also know, of course, is that masks, social distancing, hand washing, and ventilated spaces help limit transmission because this is affecting how aerosols are trans uh, the, the role of, it, it affects the role of aerosols and transmission and the first talk is going to talk a little bit about the role of aerosols and disease transmission in general and specifically in covid and it's also going to highlight while we know it's a role it's going to talk about some of the details that we don't know about um how long does the virus remain infectious in an aerosol how many aerosol what size droplet do those aerosols need to be that actually cause that transmission. Um, and, and then the second talk is really going to talk about that in the context of masks. Um, and, 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 and I really like that one because it said at the end, you'd actually start to maybe get a, a better understanding of some of the terms that get thrown around. Because in medical science, there's this term respiratory droplets, which is, is from the 19th and 20th century. And then when they talk about aerosols, they really mean aerosols that are smaller. As it turns out, to an aerosol scientist, respiratory droplets are also aerosols. And so they're going to help you understand that terminology a little bit more um, for the public. Of course, clinicians mm. already understand this. That's how they were able to write that health advice. Um, and they'll also kind of describe the context of how aerosols are used differently. You might think of, wait, I use an aerosol when I use an inhaler or sometimes drugs are delivered that way. And how's that different compared to aerosols in infectious disease mm. transmission? And they'll really talk about engineering controls and the implications of why masks work. Uh, so I think it's 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 two sets of, of really interesting lectures. And of course, if you're up at one in the morning um, on Tuesday, it could be, a you know, it's probably better than watching Netflix at one in the morning. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's aaar.org slash 2020. And it's the American Association for Aerosol Research. And just look for their public lectures. Mm. Thanks, Dr. Ray. That's uh, uh, very interesting. And I suppose, uh, as you say, it is good that people can access a lot of these conferences that uh, we otherwise wouldn't be able to get to uh, if we were just members of the public and not part of the scientific community. So thank you, team. We're going to move on to the next uh, interview in just a moment. Good to chat to you all and uh, see you in a few weeks.
Hi, Thanks. Dr. Shane. Happy Hi, birthday. Dr. Shane. Thanks, guys. We have a couple of guests on the line now. Uh, our two guests first up today are Claire Saxby and Dr. Georgia Wardfair. Now, Claire is an author who's uh, sent us a book, which I'm very impressed to have in my hot little hands here. And Georgia is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Shine Lab in the Department of Biological Sciences at Macquarie University. Good morning, Claire. Georgia, how are you going? Good morning, Shane. Well... Yeah, good morning, Shane. Well, thank you. Look, it's great to talk to you both. Um, I, I know these. this is a series of books that are coming out, which is really something that caught my eye a little while back when we, we received a press release, of course, about them. And these are stories about some of our, our key researchers here in Australia. And um, Claire, I might get you to speak first to that series. And you, you've sort of written this particular one about Georgia and, and give us a bit of a, a, a background of how this came about and, and what you're trying to achieve. Um, well, Kathy from Wild Dingo um, approached me about doing this biography uh, about scientists and ways to introduce young people to scientists in a way that makes them seem uh, or their achievements seem attainable rather than this, you know, huge gap between what mm. they've achieved now and where children are now and, and about making choices in, in schools. So, it, But their stories, they're... They're not lists of facts. Yeah, and um, you, you've written other things, though. What, tell us a bit about your career because, you know, this is, a, this is targeted, I assume, at sort of early adolescence. Is, it, is that the goal? Yeah, the crossover between primary and, and secondary, those yep. first few years, either side of that. I've written um, a number of children's books. I've written quite a lot about Australian animals. I write quite a lot about the ocean. I write about history. And then I write some really silly things that are uh, for young children about uh, rhythm and rhyme in language, sort of trying to uh, draw them into story in, by using uh, rhythms, really, mm. rhythm, rhythm and language. Mm. Now, I remember when I was a, you know, I ended up a scientist and I remember when I was a kid and I, I think the inspirational stories I had were, you know, things like The Time Machine, H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, you know, fictional scenarios so but this is a very different push in this isn't it i mean you're, you're looking at like you know to be fair i think when i got partway through my physics degree i, I realized that the time machine wasn't going to play out the way i hoped you know like as, as a kid um and you, you see the reality of what science is which is very different i mean this is a very different approach for kids isn't it well in some ways in in other ways it's exactly the same i did a lot of my early learning in uh in fiction so I found the beginning points, the curiosity points in fiction, and then you know, understanding that they were not necessarily 100% fact. I could then research them and find the fact mm. in the story. And these stories are set up like that. You know, they are filled with facts, but there's also space in between those facts for me to invent things like some of the things that Georgia did in her early childhood. She may never have done. But she could have, <laughs> based on what I knew about what she did do, I could fill in those gaps with a fiction which hopefully is indistinguishable from the actual story. Yeah, nice. Now, Georgia, how did it feel um, to be picked for this? Because there's a lot of researchers in Australia and you've been picked out as one of the, the very few and you're in some pretty good company, I might say, looking at some of the other the other people who've been chosen to be part of these stories. But how did, how did it feel to get picked? How did you get chosen? How did you get involved? Well, I actually, I just feel completely honoured to have been chosen um, for this opportunity. 
I'm a superstar of STEM, uh, one of science and technology superstars of STEM, and I believe that that Kathy may have approached them or maybe the program put me forward uh, and I wrote a pitch about my life and my career and uh, and it kind of went from there. So, yeah, I'm completely honoured. It's very good company, isn't it? Mm, uh, but yeah. I'm, just, I'm, I'm just kind of thrilled that I can, um, you know, that hopefully kids reading my story will see some of themselves in that uh, and, and, you know, choose to pursue a career in wildlife biology. Mm. Now, short of giving away, you know, everything in the book, I mean, tell us a bit about your career and how you got into into this space. I would say that I just I just followed my passion. I've always loved being with animals. I initially wanted to be a vet when I was a kid, but decided that I would prefer to work with wild animals. And I have a special uh, liking or love for reptiles. So uh, I just kind of followed that through my life. And, um, and then I, you know, did the went through university, uh, went through honours and got involved in invasion biology and animal behaviour and uh, and I'm now kind of working in the conservation space across northern Australia. So really I've just followed my heart and my passion and and tailored what, I, what I'm doing any day to, mm. to that aspect. Now the invasion biology stuff's pretty interesting and I was reading a little bit about you and you, you sort of take a bit of a different approach to that. So my understanding is that you've been looking at how to uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, almost train some of our native animals to coexist with some of the invading species. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Shane. So traditional invasion, you know, methodology relates to, you know, you try and decrease the species that you're trying to get rid of. You know, you're trying to control, so for example, cane toads, you're trying mm. to get rid of cane toads. But actually what you can do is work with the animals that are impacted and, and that's exactly what I do. I go and I train those animals not to eat cane toads and um, and so when the invasion front arrives, they leave them alone and survive. And how do you go about, I mean, how do you train a wild animal not to eat a cane toad when they're hungry? How do you do that? <laughs> Well, it's actually quite easy. You know, if, if you've ever had a bout of food poisoning, you'll, you know, you, you eat something that makes you feel sick and you never eat it again after you can't even stand the smell sometimes. And that's what we do. We actually give the animals small doses of cane toad toxin that make them sick but don't kill them. And they remember that experience. Uh, and then when the big toads arrive, they, um, they avoid them. Hmm. And, uh, you know, over, over what sort of range can you do that? Because cane toads might, correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is they're, they're sort of fairly pervasive across a, a very large area of Australia and that's causing, you know, really significant problems. So how, over, you know, what sort of range can you spread this sort of, um, this intervention? Well, it is correct that they are causing, you know, having a huge impact on our native wildlife. Uh, and that's actually why we've moved away from those traditional methods of trying to control them and working just with the with the species that are impacted. Because they only in, actually impact a handful of species, which are the predators, uh, we're able to work directly just with those species and we go to areas where there's high numbers of those animals just ahead of the cane toad front. So we can't, we can't, we can't, you know, we can't um, decrease the impact across the whole range, but we actually specifically target areas that we go into. Uh, mm. And we do do it on a landscape scale. So we actually do big releases and helicopter drops of baits and things like that. Yep. Now, you, you've mentioned an example there where the invasive species is the prey. Can you do the same sort of intervention when it's the other way around and the invasive species is the predator, like with, for example, the fox or, you know, and things like that? Not Taste aversion, which is what this method is called, has been used to, for example, uh, like in America, they've decreased rates of predation on sheep by coyotes by training them with um, laced baits, laced mm. lamb carcasses and things. So you can you can use it in, to that um, effect. But more generally, we are starting to implement behavioural 
methodology in conservation, which is really exciting. Mm. Uh, it's, it's it's very cool stuff. I think it's a when I was reading about your stuff this morning, I thought this is this is a different approach because it seems like a bit of a losing battle to just try and get rid of all the cane toads. Uh, I'm I'm assuming that's been tried and that's not effective. Yes, it definitely has. That to date, that's what the research is focused on: controlling mm. invasion, containment, and things like that. But there's just you know only a hundred cane toads were brought to Australia. And they're now over 200 million square kilometres of country. So um, the, it's just a vast problem yeah. that we can't, <laughs> we can't fix. Yeah. I mean, whenever a number like that gets to the point where I can't even vaguely imagine it, I, I just figure <laughs> we're, we're in bad shape. Um, Claire, in terms of the, the book, it's um, it's out this month. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It's out in September, wasn't it? So it's it's available. Yeah. Um, where can people yeah. find it? Um, all good bookshops and online as well, but preferably go to independent bookstores. Yep. So the title, folks, is Aussie STEM Stars, and this one's called Georgia Wardfair, who we're speaking to right now on the line. Um, reptile biologist and explorer. I would have put the word extraordinaire after that, just you know, just to be for that. Maybe in version two. Um, and it's the story's told by Claire Saxby, who we've got online as well. Look, this this is great, um, both of you. I think it's a it's a really nice thing to put these out, and hopefully, I, I would love to see this sort of thing in schools as you know required reading at an early age. Has there been any sort of interaction in that regard with getting these into schools and getting the young kids to sort of not just parents buying them who are listening to our show, but you know, schools having them there by default. Yes, um, Victoria being under lockdown, it's been slightly tricky to get into schools. But in Western Australia, the authors of the other two books that are out in the series are definitely spending time in schools and um, doing workshops with students around their stories. Yeah, fantastic. Georgia, just before we go, have you got anything that you want to, you know, sort of throw out there, the budding biologists who, you know, might want to follow a similar career, whether it's reptiles or... You know, I'll even chuck spiders in. There's some great stuff going on in Australia with spiders and et cetera. I, I would just say, you know, just follow your passion. I never thought that I'd be in a situation where I could be working with animals for a living. Um, and you just never know where those opportunities will end up. Mm. Uh, and also buy Claire's books. They're amazing. They're a real kind of between, you know, capturing people's imagination with the animals that she talks about with the facts, which I think is really important, getting kids into actually appreciating nature and understanding nature is um is the best thing we can do yeah fantastic well thank you both for giving up your time on a sunday have a have a great uh, remainder of the day and good luck with the book sales hopefully they'll go really strong and a lot of schools will take this up and a lot of kids will get to read this great story so thank you both thanks that was Claire Saxby and Georgia Ward-Fair, both uh, involved in these Aussie STEM stars books. Um, and you can find those in good bookstores and uh, we'll put some links up on our site and so forth. Triple R. In the studio with me, virtually at least, is Professor Amanda Ellis. She's from the, or she is the head of chemical engineering in the Melbourne School of Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Amanda, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Thank you, Shane, and thank you for having me today. It's great to have you on. We we actually, I was very excited when I saw the press release that came out with regards to your work, and of course, Dr. Ray is from your your school, so he knows you well, and we were chatting about it briefly yesterday, but um, one of the things I wasn't aware of that you can tell us more about is just the sheer amount of waste that comes from, you know, crop and plant production in Australia and around the world. G- give us a bit of a feel for how big that problem is. So around the world, it's around about 37 billion tonnes per annum globally for, for, for um, 
uh, crop waste. Uh, within um, the, the grapevines, which is what we've been working with, there's about seven, uh, 42 million tonnes. Mm. Um, and and um, 6 million tonnes alone comes out of China. They're not a big wine producer. Uh, so Australia would be probably equally equal, if not more than that, uh, in terms of crop waste. Hmm. So, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll get into wine in a moment, but just in general crops of that type, what are we talking about in terms of waste? What sort of materials? Oh, oh well, everything. I mean, anything that we eat. Um, so waste from pineapples, tomatoes, potatoes, uh, wheat, straw. Uh, well, we don't eat straw, but um, hmm. wheat, um, uh, oat holes, uh, olives, pips, um, bagasse, which, you know, um, so everything. There's tons and tons and tons, billions of tons of it. And I suppose people have, um, you know, I know when I grow my own vegetables in the garden and so forth, I have a general idea that this stuff goes back into the ground, all is good and well. Um, but there's obviously some pretty substantial issues with that when you're talking about the quantities that we're discussing. Well, indeed, and I think it's um, – so it's either burnt or it's um, buried, and either way you're going to give off some greenhouse gases, and that's the main main contributor. But it also um, – a lot of farmers have been in the past putting it on their farms, and it's it ru- ruins the soil and the, and the bacteria in the soil because you've got – for example, if you're getting rid of your citrus waste – it's going to build up high pH, uh, low pHs in the soil and start to um, leach into the in, into the groundwater. So that's not good either. So the farmers are, are really more approaching uh, better environmental stewardship. It's especially the young farmers. So there's a big push to try and repurpose uh, some of this waste that's on on their farms. Yeah, I, I suppose that the moment I think about that, I start thinking, okay. You know, we, we, I have an old friend who worked a lot on cell walls and, you know, you've, you've got all these particular types of cell walls in plants that are, you know, really interesting and, and varied. And, you know, I, I suppose that uh, there's some, some ways in which you could use those that's sort of more effective. Before we go on to that, though, in the, in the wine sort of sector – um, you know, this is this is obviously a very big export industry for Australia. It's very successful. What what are they doing with the waste currently that, that they must produce? Oh well, it just it, they it just goes into landfill. Oh really? So, um, yeah. yeah. Or or they it, they can burn it on farm, but or it just goes into landfill. And of course, there, there's a cost to that as well. So you've got to pay a particular charge per you know to, per cubic meter of of waste. So. Um, they're trying to look at other ways of, of, of reusing. Well, not the farmers themselves, but local industries can mm. potentially, and this is where we got into our work, which, which is looking at um, local industry was looking at a way of sourcing a particular material um, from crop waste uh, rather than importing it into Australia. Yep. So tell us about that. What, what have you been working on with regards to taking care of this waste problem? Um, so we've been looking at grapevine prunings and... Um, using them as a chip uh, to go into particle board. So particle board is um, engineered wood, uh, which is made from reconstituted wood. Uh, it's a trilayer, <clears throat> a trilayer material, so it has a very strong um, outer uh, centre and then a very um, uh, softer core, which makes up about 65% of the material. Um, and so you 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 have wood chips normally in there, soft wood chips, uh, pine trees in particular, and that's imported into Australia to make our particle board in Australia at least. Um, and so we were looking at ways of trying to um, 
swap out some of that wood chip for just waste material, local waste material uh, to the plants. Hmm. And, and where the, uh, does the wood chip normally come from everywhere else that, you know, our paper, et cetera, et cetera, comes from? So it's sort of, you know, is it currently a you know, renewable resource, the wood chipping used in the particle board industry? No, they grow it. So they grow the trees specially and then tri- okay. chip them. They chip them quite early on. So um, there's a little bit of wood chip that comes from um, just the, the building, you know, making yep. wood, the wood industry. But the, the, the um, material that comes from overseas for the core is um, is often because you have to have it a reasonably high um, purity. It's it's got to have no mold and things like that in it because otherwise you've got to pre-treat it. Hmm. Um, so we we looked at um, replacing uh, grapevine prunings with the the, the core, uh, and we anywhere from um, ten to a hundred percent. Uh, and we found that 10% worked really, really well, um, and I can talk a little bit about why that would be. Um, but um, I, any anything greater than that wasn't ideal. But we are still working on on how to um, increase the the amount of replacement. Mm. But even 10% is an enormous amount because it's about 40, what about 40 dollars per meter cubed. Um, there's around about 97 million metres cubed um, of particle board that's made uh, globally, and that's been increasing um, 15% since 2018 because of the, um, obviously, the construction industry has mm. been taking up all over the world. So just replacing 10% of it, um, of 97 million metres cubed, is, is a huge achievement um, yeah. And in terms of... Um, you know, and you're you're repurposing something that would have caused global climate. Yeah, climate. I was going to say you you're, you're locking. I mean, if this stuff ends up in a laminated bench top, you're kind of locking the carbon in for quite a while, aren't you? I mean, that's not a, a short term yeah. fix. That's a very long term fix of some of the particle board use. Yeah, that's it. And I mean, the good thing, one of the things that's quite unique about the the the, the grape prunings is is that it's um it's lightweight. It's got a high cellulose content. It's quite pithy. So you've got lightweight boards so, you know, builders can walk around with it. You're not adding to any weight. And then really important part is that it has low grit, which is, means that it's got low silica content and mineral content, which means that um, tooling uh, and tools last longer uh, for builders. Mm-hmm. So you can't just replace uh, softwood for any type of, of material. It has to have some um, plant material that's got low low silica content. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, that ability to cut cut the wood you don't want your uh, all your blades just dulling the moment you cut through something particle board is i think something we all think of as relatively soft as a material to cut relative you know i've cut it myself it's relatively easy to to cut and if that became suddenly something that was dulling all your blades um that wouldn't be a that would not be yeah. a good outcome and in terms of you, you've mentioned the the prunings from grapevines i mean is the next step to sort of look at other plant materials as well that we other crops and so forth that we have here in Australia. It seems like we have an you know, endless supply of of these materials. Well, that's right, indeed. I mean, my I mean, this is probably a bit gimmicky, but my my desire is to use pineapple heads somehow. It's an amazingly strong material, mm. uh, and 
if you could put fibres into the particle board or something like that, that would be quite unique. Um, and but we've got to give it a try. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe surfboards. You know, maybe surfboards. Yeah, and that's right. I mean, it's amazing. It's like mushrooms. I could well, we could go on forever, right? So you make leather out of mushrooms um, and belts and things like that, and shoes now out of out of mushrooms. So um, because it's actually quite a, quite a robust material. Yeah. That's so um, same with I think same with pineapple heads. Yeah. Oh, look, this is um, this is fascinating work, and I think anything that helps lock in some of that carbon, and you know, when you talk about just burning it, or you know, it just sounds like such such a terrible thing to be doing in 2020 as a as an you know, as a way to deal with waste. But of course, there's so much of it in these industries. We do we do have to deal with it in some way. Um, are, are there any sort of just finally? Are there any strength issues or uh, problems like that that you're facing, or have they sort of been overcome? No. So the material that we made, which has the ten percent, has met any world standards in um, in the industry. So European, uh, American, and, and Australian, New Zealand. It's um, we have um, less. We test swelling, bending, rupture, elasticity, elasticity. So it's a stronger material that we've made. Uh, and it has an enhanced surface density, so it's very, very tough. Um, and we think this is just because uh, of the way that it gets packed when uh, you you compress the particles mm. together. Um, and so we've created a stronger material, um, which is quite significant. Yeah, oh, look, it sounds fantastic. And I think, uh, you know, you should label all this particle board, you know, made made from the production of wine or something so that people have a you know, good feel about it. Absolutely. Look, that's where the market is. That's where the market is. Yeah, Fantastic. Amanda, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with this ongoing work. It really is um, really is excellent to see that coming out of the University of Melbourne and, and dealing with, um, you know, well, there's a great industry, but an industry like many others with conversion problems into a sustainable future. So thanks so much for chatting today. No problem at all, Shane. Thank you very much. That was Professor Amanda Ellis, the Head of Chemical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Three. We have Dr. Brittany Croft on the line. She's from the University of Cambridge. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning, Shane. It's great to talk to you live, I believe, from Preston. Yes, Preston, Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, not quite, not quite Cambridge. So you, you have a really interesting story to tell because you, uh, I suppose, got your job at Cambridge, what, around start of the year? Uh, yeah, so I was writing up my thesis for my PhD um, in November and I got the job pretty much at the beginning of December and um, so I was meant to fly to the UK at the end of March and about a week before my flight the borders shut and Cambridge shut down and I stayed here. Yeah you must be one of the only people wandering around Melbourne or, or not wandering around Melbourne saying you know I'm, I work at Cambridge uh, because it's, it's, it's kind of a weird scenario usually people do get on that plane. Before we get on to your work at Cambridge if there is any I'm not sure what you could do long distance but um, what did you do in your PhD here in Melbourne? I, I assume you're at the at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute yeah? Yes, I was at MCRI and I was also at the Hudson Institute at, oh, yep. in Monash. So I did my PhD at Monash University and my degree, well, my research was studying disorders of sex development, mm -hmm. basically trying to understand people who are intersex and the genetics behind these conditions. So it's quite a broad range of conditions mm. and I was looking at how the genes are regulated. Um, right. So, yeah. Yep. And now you've moved into quite a different space. So you're working on lung health. Yes, so um, it's, it's it's similar and different. So uh, 
I'm looking at organ organogenesis, how organs grow, and that was what I was doing um, for my PhD. But I was looking at testes or testicles. Um, but now I'm looking at how lungs grow. So it's actually quite interesting because a lot of the genes are the same. They're just sort of doing different things. Mm. So it's quite hard getting my head around. The genes are all the same names, but they're all doing different things, which is not helpful. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, I, my, my recollection is that MCRI, they do all sorts of little organ growing experiments, don't they? Some of the little organoids, the sort of mini organs. Um, did you have much exposure to that while you were there? Uh, through other people's research, mine was uh, much more uh, uh, genetics computer-based, uh, but that's exactly what I'm going to be doing at Cambridge at some point. Um, the idea is to culture uh, human lungs into organoids and hopefully to eventually start culturing uh, lung tissue um, as a whole um, thing, mm. uh, basically trying to understand how lungs form and then move on from that to try and help people who are born with lung disease or um, small lungs when they're born. So that's yeah. the idea. <laughs> so so I, I imagine the, um, you know, the, the, the end goal there of, of sort of growing lung, not necessarily a whole lung, but, you know, parts of lungs or, you know, lung yeah. material. How the devil do you go about doing that? I mean, give us the sort of the you're talking to a physicist version, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, I haven't started yet, So, yep. but uh, this is, from what I understand is uh, we're quite fortunate at, at Cambridge. Uh, they have uh, good access to uh, human fetal material, which is quite rare. Uh, Australia doesn't really do that. But mm. um, so basically the group has access to the uh, to growing lung tissue that we can basically – my, my, my postdoc is meant to figure out how to actually grow it. So we're going to try a bunch of different things. Uh, embed the tissue in gels, um, grow them on membranes, try and do organ on a chip, which is mm. kind of cut the organs into really small pieces and hook them up to basically tiny little tubes and push water and fluid for it to try and mimic what would be happening in utero. Um, so this is all the very exciting things that I was hoping to be doing this yeah. year. But. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this, this is exciting stuff. I mean, one of the things I never hear about uh, when, when we talk about this sort of work with other researchers and so forth, they often talk about the idea of growing lungs and growing lungs. But the, the thing that, to me that seems really exciting, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that if this stuff works, you could take some of my cells, grow a piece of lung from my cells outside of my body, and then test drugs on that without affecting me. Is that right? That seems, I think that's the end goal for a lot of this sort of research is um, that, you, that we can do that. I'm, we're looking at embryos, so like very early stages. So mm. when you're working with adult tissue, it's, it's not as, as easy. But I guess that's a, that's a gold standard. If we can get to that point, then we can figure out what drugs you can help. Like my, my lab at Cambridge is looking at COVID research, for example. Now they've got the lung tissue, so they're testing COVID on, on these early, lung, um, basically babies' lungs. So um, yeah. in, in culture, <laughs> not on actual babies, of course. Yeah. Now, you've been on the, uh, shall we just call it the Preston campus of Cambridge um, for a while. <laughs> what, what have you been doing? Like, since, uh, uh, don't, don't give, give away anything that could jeopardize your Cambridge job, but you know, like, what, what sort of things can you do? Because you're a wet chemistry person. You, you're meant to be in the lab yeah so uh, i can talk about my little my journey for this so mm, yeah um i was meant to fly out in in march and then obviously there was just all that chaos of not knowing what this was what was i supposed to do should i have stayed should i've gotten on the plane mm. um i spent about a month on forced holiday because we just i just didn't know i signed up for job seeker yep. did all of that um and then thankfully the, the university of cambridge uh broke a deal with the um, uk government to let 
me basically be employed through them um, remotely because that wasn't actually allowed with my visa. I wasn't the only postdoc. There's right. quite a few of yeah. us scattered around the world. I'm actually working with a girl in, in Mexico who was meant to move at the same time as me. So, you know, her and I have just been the remote postdocs at the Cambridge lab. It's been quite fun. Um, but for the most part, I've, I, I've just been reading the literature, trying to get my head around this new topic. Um, I went to an online conference. Mm. Um, it's not exactly like full days because you can't really work like you would normally. There's, yeah. I don't have access to a lab. I've got some data I can look at online, but it's not – I'm yeah, it's, I'm probably, probably working about three quarts of the day just yep. reading. Mm. I'm doing yeah. a lot of gardening. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Now, let's unpack a couple of those things. The, the online conference, I mean, what was that experience like? Because I know – so I have I have some scenarios where I've been to talks and there's 100 people at the talk and 99 of them have their video turned off and it just – it feels dreadful to me. And then when I give talks, uh, I try and make sure everyone has their video on so there's a sort of more of a group experience. So what was your experience with the online conference? What was that like? So I wasn't presenting, which I think made it a lot easier. Yep. I was just a spectator. Um, it was run by the company of biologists, so it was, it was quite a small meeting. It was only about 150 people mm -hmm. um, who attended. I actually didn't mind it in the sense that because I was learning a bunch of new topics, for me, I could they recorded everything so I could go back and rewatch, which you don't usually get to do at a conference. You, you get bombarded with a lot of information and then you hope you can some of it sticks. Yep. Um, so I quite enjoyed it in that sense. And um, they had... A, They'd set up their own sort of proxy system where you could type in your question for the speaker and then people would upvote the question throughout their talk. Oh, great. So, yeah. yeah so, I actually think the questions that were usually asked were a lot were a lot better than you'd usually get at a conference. And then the benefit of it being online was any questions that didn't get answered, they would put into a Slack channel and mm. then uh, the speaker actually answered them later. So, in that sense, that helped with the um, – everyone being scattered of course i the, the unfortunately the, the conference was in uk time so I oh, was right, yeah. <laughs> middle of midnight. night <laughs> yes yeah, so, yeah. but because it was recorded i could catch up and i just um, yeah watched it on, I, I, on I love TV. i love this question time stuff though because i i teach a lot of people how to give presentations and so forth and especially mm -hmm. when i'm teaching phd students one of the things that they come to me with is the question of you know what about the dreaded question time you know like and 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 usually what i tell them is you know in any given audience there's always a few a-holes and they'll ask questions that are more about them than about the work or the presenter and just you know ego-driven nonsense that frankly should have just drummed out of the sector because it's not of value and it causes damage but this type of upvoting of questions kind of eliminates that problem because no one's going to be upvoting some a-hole who's just big noting themselves in the audience because they don't have the limelight on them for a few seconds do they yeah, it was great. I actually got a question answered, which usually mm. when I go to conferences, you, you'll stick your hand up and there'll be 50 other people with their hands yep. up. So you never really get your question in. And surprisingly, I got mine. So I was like, oh, this is great. People liked what I was asking. Um, so I think it democratized the system a bit better. I, I, I agree. There's so many uh, egos in science mm. with these things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, and it's really good, especially for, for younger researchers who are a little less you know, a little less savvy in that, that sense and, you know, not quite able to, to handle some of those quite hostile 
environments sometimes which are really inappropriate and unprofessional but you know good luck fighting them when you're a phd student in your second year and some professors hounding you with a nonsense question just to make themselves look good so this this sounds like a, you know I, I try and find there's some good things coming out of these sort of um you know online versions that you know it's not all bad i, I suspect the coffee breaks weren't as much fun though yeah, well, I missed out on all of the social parts because it was yeah. about four o'clock in the morning and I, I'm not that keen to get up that early or stay up that late. Um, yep. So I'm not sure what that was like for the conference, but they, whenever we logged into the portal, they forced you to turn your webcam on and they sort of put you on these little tables with about five other people. So you could try and network, but I, I, I think in the end, it's, it's how much you throw yourself into it. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. like, like going to any conference, you just have to try and talk to people, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, so what's the plan going forward now? Do you have any insights as to timing, when, where you'll be able to head over to Cambridge? I'm hoping your postdoc there is in a year because your year's almost up. <laughs> no, it was a three-year contract, thankfully. Um, so basically, oh, what I've been doing this year is just waiting for bureaucracy to sort themselves out. There was uh, the way to enter. I'm, not, I'm an Australian citizen, so I had to apply for a UK work yep. visa. Um, so that process requires you to enter within a certain time frame. They have a big net system yep. um so basically we're just trying to figure out how to get that reissued so that's actually been reissued now i got that back um this week um, which is exciting so i have until uh, basically november mid-november to get on a plane um, right. and uh, everyone's talking about how the borders shut but uh, to leave australia but if you've got a job and you're not planning on coming back any right. within three months yeah we'll get rid of you yeah, pretty much. I got I got approved <laughs> within about twelve hours. Yeah, you just can't come back, but we're happy to get rid of you. So, well, look, Brittany, thanks so much for, for chatting to us. This this sounds like um, you know, it's it's an interesting story that we don't often hear about these scenarios that have just hit that deadline. You know, within a few days or a week or a month, even of when everything shut down, and and it sounds like you've done your best to keep things going. And it's good that Cambridge have been so supportive. Nice to hear one of the you know the world's top universities doing that. Congratulations on the job. Uh, at Cambridge, oh, by the you. way, that's a that's a huge accolade. Um, hopefully, if if you don't mind, when you're over there and you're settled and so forth, you can give us a bell. The time frame will be a little bit tougher on the two of us, but uh, we can have another chat then. So, good luck with your travels, and hopefully, you're, you're there soon. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Brittany. Good to talk to you. Good, thank you. Goodbye. Folks, that was Dr. Brittany Croft from the University of Cambridge. We're uh, pretty much at the end of the show now, so we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It in just a few moments. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday, everybody. I hope you've all worked out that um, the clocks did change overnight. These days, I just rely on my phone to do it for me, so I don't think anymore. Uh, but if you haven't, uh, we're about to hit noon, which means it's time for Eat It. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for listening to Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.